Welcome to Fresh Cut Grass, light conversation with turf grass professionals from across the turf industry, with your hosts, Jeff Fowler and Tanner DelVal. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Fresh Cut Grass a podcast for turf professionals and sports turf managers. I'm Jeff Fowler. I'll be one of your hosts for today. Joining me as always, extension educator from Penn State, Tanner DelVal. Tanner, welcome. Glad to be here. So today we have another Penn Stater on with us as our special guest, Pete Landscoot. Pete is our extension turf grass specialist at Penn State University, and Pete um, has been around um, Pennsylvania for most of his career, um, his professional career, um, and and it's an honor to have Pete with us today. Pete, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Tanner. Um, so, so between Tanner and Pete and I. Um, we get the phone calls from homeowners, from lawn care professionals, from sports turf managers, from, from all over the region about turf problems, whether it's um, disease, weeds, um, you name it. We, we get the questions from the, the public. Um, and we thought it would be um, interesting for our listeners to hear um, some of the questions that we get asked um, pretty routinely throughout our, um, our, our, our growing season in, in, in Pennsylvania, where we're located. Um, and, and I don't know, Pete has, a, has a, an interesting um, background um, coming from the golf industry, um, coming up through. And so we're not going to talk about golf today, but really getting at these homeowner calls that we get pretty traditionally. Um, Pete, what would you say is the most common question that gets directed to you as the quote unquote turf grass um, specialist? Dog urine. <laughs> And, I, and I'm really glad I got my PhD in turf so I could answer those questions. <laughs> I, I, I'm serious. That is the most common. After that, it would be what grass species should I plant in my lawn? Yeah, so that dog, that dog urine question is really popular. Um, I think Tanner and I'll agree that that's by far the most common question we get. Um, so what's the answer? How do I fix it? move that dog around. And it's mostly a problem in early spring. <clears throat> and people just send their female dogs out on the front lawn. They don't want to take it for a walk. And the dogs just squat there and, and go. And then when the snow melts, you get these nice, beautiful green rings all, all over. My former advisor at University of Rhode Island used to call it canine pee disease. <laughs> because uh, <clears throat> people thought it was a disease. You got to, you know, it's, it's very circular. You got a patch of dead grass in the center and then this stimulated ring around. It looks like a fairy ring. And there's all sorts of things on the internet about 
you know, what, what you can feed a dog to make the salts less toxic to the grass. Um, there's some thoughts about putting down little mats of artificial grass so the dogs can go on that, but I don't think dogs like doing that. I think they go like natural grass, just like the rest of us. <laughs> so I think it's just, you just try to move it around. And that's just one of the things you're going to have to deal with if you have, um, dogs, primarily female dogs. Yeah. My, my smart aleck answer always is get rid of the dog. Um, because if you, if you don't want pee spots, you, you, you probably yeah. shouldn't have a dog. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately. So what about, they, they do stay around and they do stay around for a long period of time and it, they're tough to get rid of. So. What about, uh, irrigating or like right after, you know, would that dilute some of it? Is that, is that an option? I'm sure it would. I'm sure it would. If you want to run, <laughs> you want to follow your dog around with a hose. That's, that's a big <laughs> expense for, for, uh, well, yeah. Um, and that's kind of hard to do, you know, in, when it's freezing out too, you don't want to put, turn your water on when it's that cold. Correct. Uh, I think maybe in the summer, but usually I, I find that most of those, most people call about that kind of thing earlier in the year. You know, when, when the grass, when they're out looking at their grass first thing in the year, it's starting to green up and all of a sudden they see these spots all over the place. Let's move on to a different topic. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, damaged turf coming out of the springtime, uh, how about salt damage? You know, that's probably another thing we see a lot of. And, um, you know, what's some, what are some strategies people can do to try to minimize the amount of salt damage that they have or um, maybe how to remediate them? Yeah, that's another one. Um, and this year, you, maybe you're going to see more salt damage than ordinarily, at least in the central part of the state and the eastern part of the state where we have significant snow cover. And in some cases, we've had a um, couple of ice storms where you have a layer of ice. <clears throat> I've had to go out and salt my front walk um, three or four times this year. But some people really get heavy with the salt. I think the first thing is, do you really need to go as heavy as, as you do uh, on these situations. I understand that it's important to keep your sidewalk ice free, um, liability issues, slipping issues and that sort of thing. But, you know, there's probably a limit as to how much you wanna put down. And eventually that salt is gonna solubilize and run off and it's gonna probably run off into the lawn, at least along the sidewalk. So, Sodium chloride, the cheapest salt, that's what I use. Um, that's gonna be the worst when it comes to turf damage. There are things like calcium chloride, which are a little softer when it comes to burning of the turf. But most people, I guess, you know, in the trucks that are going around in salt are using sodium chloride. So, so let's say, you, you know, spring is around the corner and the snow melts and the ice melts and you find, um, dead grass along the side of your sidewalk and driveway. What can you do? Oh, I usually tell people just let it rain a few times. You're gonna to have to leach those salts out of the system. I know some people like to put down gypsum and if it's sodium, gypsum will, the calcium and gypsum will displace some of the sodium. But I think by the time you start getting around to putting gypsum down, most of that, the sodium and the chloride is leached out of the, the root zone anyway. I, I think that's, you know, that's sort of a waste of time and, and energy to do that. 
And then, so, go ahead. And then once it warms up, um, a lot of times those areas are not that wide, and you start to get new tillers moving in, and you get recovery. Um, you can always seed with uh, something like perennial ryegrass too in those areas if it's really bad. But I would wait until you had several rains so that salt is leached out of the soil. Yeah. So now that we've gotten those two things out of the way, right? So we salt damage and, and dog damage. Let's let's get to the what are let let's get to some nitty gritties, Pete. Um, what 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 should we be looking for? What should we be you know we've been under as you said we've been under snow cover for a while here. Um, we haven't seen our green grass for a while. What what should we be watching out for um, this spring coming into the season? Well, I think one thing we're going to see is um, a fair amount of snow mold, especially where where snow has been piled up um, around driveways, sidewalks, that kind of thing. Um, not much you can do about it, like all these other early spring problems. You just kind of let nature take its course and the grass is going to fill. And usually gray snow mold is the most common one. And that's, uh, unless, unless you've been working with um, putting in a new lawn in the fall, usually the turf recovers from that. But you're likely to see a fair amount of that, especially in low areas and areas where the snow is accumulated. In addition to snow mold, um, moss is always something that we see early in the year. Lots of different kinds of moss out there. Uh, people seem to get all upset about that. And that's usually a reflection of the fact that you don't have a really dense turf due to lack of fertilization and maybe too much shade. And anything that really thinned out the lawn, you're probably going to have moss coming in in the spring. Um, I usually let, want homeowners to know that as the spring goes on and as the grass starts spreading out a little bit more and growing fast, a lot of that moss will be displaced or at least you don't see it as much. And, and to wait for a little while before you go out and do treatments with it. Yeah, that's, that's true with most of these things, right? Um, you know, especially these early spring, um, give it a little time, let it, yes. you know, give it some time. Um, yes. Just because we see green grass doesn't mean that it's already the dense um, mid-June turf, right? We got to give it a chance to wake up, just like we have to wake up from winter. Yeah, um, and and that's the best of it. But people are impatient; and they want to do something right away. Um, yeah, wait till May, you know. And I think most of these problems just aren't problems anymore, especially snow mold, moss dog damage, ice damage along sidewalks. They just, the turf starts growing and they just kind of disappear. And then yeah. other problems, <laughs> other problems start coming up. Then, then yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean we'll be problem free. Right. That just and then, means we're going to change. Yeah. <laughs> the, the broadleaf weeds will start displacing um, the moss. <laughs> so, so, so speaking of broadleaf weeds, um, broadleaf weeds, grassy weeds, um, what what are we what should we be on the lookout for um, this spring? I know you and I have talked about um, some of the, the the grassy weeds that have become more and more prevalent um, that we're seeing more of. Um, but but why don't you talk a little bit about what we 
what we might see coming into spring? Yeah, it kind of depends on where you are in the state. Um, you know, I, I, down in the southeast part of the state, which which is where we have the most severe weed problems, a couple of weeds to look out for that are sort of on the move or starting to appear more in lawns. Um, one of them is Japanese stiltgrass. Now that's a real common annual grass in wooded areas. Like if you go into some of our state parks and walk down a, a path um, or drive down a road in one of the state parks where you have wooded areas on either side of the road, you'll see Japanese stiltgrass just about everywhere. It looks very similar. The, the plants look really similar to little bamboo trees. I mean, like it's like a real miniature bamboo tree. The leaves kind of look like um, crabgrass leaves, except for they have a silver stripe down the center. So that's a couple of identifying characteristics of them. Now they're starting to move into lawns and I've seen pretty severe infestations in parks where they have a lot of trees. Um, I had three or four calls from down around Montgomery County this year about Japanese stiltgrass taking over entire lawns down there. And it's not the easiest grass to control. It germinates, it's an annual, so the seed germinates early in the year, earlier than crabgrass. So sometimes these pre-emergence applications are gonna miss that. And uh, you have to go in with a post-emergence product like a claim to clean it up. So that's one. Another one is uh, goosegrass. Now, goosegrass has always been around, especially down in the southeast part of the state, but now it seems to be moving further north, um, getting to be more severe in the Harrisburg area, um, up, even up here in State College. Just on some of my walks around the area, I'm seeing more and more goosegrass around. And that may be a short-term thing because we've had a couple of mild winters, but I have a feeling um, that it's going to be more of an issue in uh, other parts of the state now. And uh, that's got some challenges too, because it germinates three to four weeks later. It's an annual, so it germinates three to four weeks later than crabgrass. So you may not have as good a time controlling that as uh, crabgrass with our normal pre-emergence applications. So those are two grass weeds. There's a sedge too, uh, false green kalinga. I mean, I think most people are familiar with nut sedge, but false green kalinga, which is normally been a problem on golf courses for the past 10 years or so in the southeast part of the state. We're starting to get more calls on false green Kalinga in lawns and sports turf fields. It's not real severe yet, but I know over in New Jersey, that's become a, a big problem. Um, and I suspect it's only gonna get worse here in um, Pennsylvania as well. And fortunately, most of the nut sedge materials um, will suppress that. Getting full control is another matter, though. All right, Pete. What about um, some of the first weeds that we see coming once the snow starts leaving? We start seeing maybe things like hairy bittercress. You know, what do what do you do about controlling that? That's a real tough one, and that seems to be one of those broadleaf weeds that's on the increase too. At least here in central Pennsylvania, um, I see it a lot in um, farmers' fields too. It's not just in turf. So that is a winter annual. So that means that it 
typically germinates in the fall and you see very small plants. And these small plants can survive over the winter, at least in mild winters. And some of the seed will germinate very, very early in spring too. So you can get mature plants coming over from fall in, into spring, and you can get some germination in re very early in the spring. So the plants are starting to grow before you're even thinking about putting down a pre-emergence herbicide or a post-emergence herbicide. That's one of the problems. Not only that, um, it is a mustard, it's a member of the mustard family and it has pods, these seed pods that when they split open, the seeds fly several feet, a couple feet anyway. So if you have this growing in your flower beds, which I, I think used to be the main problem, they, they shoot out into your lawn and now you can start getting some of these plants in the lawn and they just spread like crazy. You can track these seeds, they just get everywhere. So when you start having problems with hairy bittercress, it just moves and moves and moves. And they're little rosettes. Um, I guess, I, I don't know, striving the leaves are kind of like kidney shaped leaves. And they put out a little white flower that's about three or four inches, uh, a stalk that's three or four inches tall. And then you get a little white flower at the top. And that will eventually turn into a seed pod, which perpetuates the cycle. And we talked about being patient, that's another one you can be patient with because by the time late May, early June rolls around, you won't see that anymore. Um, being a winter annual, it kind of dies back in late spring, early summer. You don't see it again. You think you've controlled it. And then it comes back again in late fall and early spring again. So control is really tough, Tanner, because you know that means you got to get out there really, really early with a broadleaf herbicide. And that's the only thing you're going after. So I, I don't know. And if you're really dedicated, and you really want to get rid of it. I guess that's the answer to go in there and fall with a broadleaf herbicide and go in with spring with a broadleaf herbicide really early. I've never tried it, but that's the only thing I can think of other than a pre-emergence herbicide in the fall. Yeah. And that pre-emergence in the fall, we've had, we've talked about um, on this program, we've talked about um, that in the past and, um, you know, catches some other things, but not near the, the um, efficacy that we expect in the spring from our pre-emergence. Yeah. Um, so one interesting, one interesting, sorry for interrupting Jeff, but one interesting product, which is on the market now is uh, called crew. I think Tanner, you're familiar with that. It's a mixture of dithiopyr and isoxaben. So dithiopyr is dimension. So it's a crabgrass material, but isoxaben is uh, the active ingredient in gallery. So that might work a little bit better on some of these um, annual broadleaf weeds that we have too. Um, I've never really tried it, but it's an interesting combination that might be interesting uh, for people to look at now. Yeah. A little bit different approach to it. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, we've seen that over time is sometimes it just takes a different chemical approach. Um, you know, that becomes um, not resistant, but it becomes um, less, less efficient um, to just keep nailing it with the same old, same old, um, if we mix up our chemistry right. a little bit, we, we see better results. And speaking um, of the same old, same old, you know, I, I, you know, I don't think there's been a lot of 
new development, new active ingredients in the herbicide market. But there's certainly a lot of new products out with different combinations in them. You know, like uh, there's there's a new one called Game On, which contains uh, 2,4-D choline, which is supposed to be less volatile um, to form of 2,4-D. And it has fluoroxapyr in it, which is good for clover and the small viney weeds. And also something called Aralex, which, um, you know, that's, that's uh, one of these um, growth regulator type broadleaf herbicides, which is supposed to be better to prevent resistance from occurring. So that looks like an interesting one. I don't know if that has a residential use yet though. Um, I think that's mostly for the professional end of the industry. Another one is uh, Sure Power. That's a new one. It's a combination from New Farm that has um, flumioxazin, um, 2,4-D triclopyr, fluoroxapyr. Uh, that's supposed to be very good for ground ivy and wild violet. They've done some research on that in Ohio. Um, I don't know how many people have worked. Have you worked with that at all, Tanner? At all? I have. Yeah, I've actually sprayed that myself. And um, you got to be careful with that material. It can cause some damage to your desirable turf. And I've heard that, that. Yes, I've heard that. And now it's not devastating, like it's going to kill it, but it, it definitely can, especially if you spot spray it, you'll notice where you sprayed. Um, or if you use like a ride-on machine or something with a boom, you can see where those nozzles were on and where they turned off. And it's it's temporary. And the damage is from that flumioxazin that's yes, in there. Right. And, and that, it's, a, it, it's a contact herbicides. And it'll, it'll, it will do put a little bit of like just where those little water, water droplets touch the leaf blades of your desirable turf. It'll actually put little burn marks on there, depending on, you know, the species. There's probably some variability there on rate, species, weather, temperature, stress. But uh, it'll come back. You'll basically be able to mow that off. But it's just something kind of like tenacity. Just expect that you're going to see something. Yeah. And that flumioxazin is the active ingredient in another compound called SureGuard, which is only for flower beds. So don't, don't mix up those names. <laughs> yeah, they are definitely different. SurePower and SureGuard. SurePower is for turf. SureGuard is not. Yeah, SureGuard is, uh, we use that a lot in for like bare ground controls or in flower beds in conjunction with glyphosate to give you some enhanced post-emergent control and some pre-emergent control of some different types of annuals. Um, but it does, as Pete had mentioned, it does have some good efficacy on ground ivy and violets. And if you look at the label, it's almost like a miracle product. There's a lot of different things on that label. Um, but it, 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 I think there's a, a, a time to use it. There's a certain time of the season where it could work. Uh, you know, ground ivy and violets, you know, there's a, there's two weeds that are still, I think some of the, especially violets, very difficult to control. No, no question about it. And this, and this product, SurePower also has triclopyr in it. And so 2,4-D and triclopyr. And I think that's, that's always been the old standby for a wild violet is to get something, some product with both 2,4-D and triclopyr. <sighs> And it had the right concentrations. And um, still, though, even, even when you're applying triclopyr and 2,4-D, it's wild violet is tough to control. Just have these huge rhizomes that allow the foliage to keep coming back, coming back, coming back. You know, uh, 
And ground ivy, ground ivy is a good thing to try to control in the fall after the first frost. Yeah, you'll sure. you'll be hard pressed to to um, be able to control ground ivy other than in the fall, right? Right. I mean, you can knock it back in the spring, but and think about fall applications. You got to remember that the herbicide is being drawn back down into the crown in the in the with the sugars in the plant in the fall, whereas in the spring, everything's kind of moving upwards. It's kind of like tree sap, right? Yep. So you want to be drawing the herbicide down with the sugars into the, the crowns where it's going to actually kill the plant outright. If you're in a situation where you need to, it is the spring and you have to try to reduce or knock it back or burn the tops off, you can use materials that have something like carfentrazone in it. And that will burn the tops off, but it's not a systemic material. So some of the um, PBI Gordon materials, uh, like some of the zone products, like T-Zone, um, I think power, Surge. I think Power Zone. Power Zone. Some of those materials have uh, Carfentrazone in there, right. which which is a contact material that will help burn the tops off in, in a similar way that SurePower is doing that. But SurePower has some of those um herbicides that will translocate within the plant where a contact will not. Right. So another weed that we see in the springtime is rough bluegrass. Yeah. Oh, yes. Especially the spring of 2019. Um, and that followed that horrendous summer we had with all the rain in 2018, where we had we set records with rainfall. And, and I think that really set off the Poet Trivialis or the rough bluegrass. Sometimes we call it Poet Trivialis, sometimes rough bluegrass. And I got more calls on that, I think, than I ever had on any weed. And it really throws people off. I think they, it looks like a turf grass sometimes, but it, in early spring, it grows about three times as fast. So these light green patches of Poetrivialis start popping up in lawns and they really stand out like a sore thumb. And it's difficult to identify. Um, so I get samples in to my office and if it's an early spring, you know, all I have to do is look at the back of the leaf blades and it's shiny. And if you have a prominent mid vein running up and down the main leaf, and you've got these purplish stems, it's rough bluegrass. And uh, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do to selectively remove it. So you either have to live with it or, or spray it out with Roundup. That's the holy grail. The holy grail is to find a selective herbicide to control Poetrivialis. And, and that goes right across the board, golf courses, sports turf, lawns it's a Un until we start growing bermuda grasses here right then we can take it out <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah yeah can't wait for that to happen yeah yeah it's uh it is it's i mean it just shows in general though it's pretty difficult to control almost any cool season grass in a cool season grass you know we don't have a great surefire answer at least as far as you know residential and sports fields for POA even, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you have to have programs to do it. We just don't have silver right. bullets for a lot of our cool season annuals, summer annuals. It's a different story, but um, you know, um, 
rough bluegrass is, isn't an annual either. It's a perennial. So it's something that right. is going to be bare year after stolen. year. Spreads by stolen. So it grows over the existing turf and it grows out in these patches that can get pretty large, you know, several feet in diameter sometimes. My, and, and then, my advice is if you see it and if you know what you're doing, get it early with Roundup, you know, spot treat it with Roundup. Don't let it start growing like crazy and my whole backyard is incidentally is almost all of it is Boa trivialis, but I manage it. I have a lot of shade back there. It's a good buffer between the street behind my house and my, and my house. And the Poa trivialis is kind of like a nice looking Poa trivialis. So I just kind of manage it. I believe me, I'd rather have something else, but it's the only thing that's going to grow back there because they have a poorly drained soil and a lot of shade. And there are varieties, incidentally, of poetry trivialis that you can buy, but, I, you know, not many people are going to buy into that here. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, talking about some of these perennials that are issues, one of, it's not really something that you can control, definitely not in the spring and not easily anytime is like zoysia grass, for instance, you know, you get coming out of the spring, you have the, how dormant the, the appearance of zoysia is. I mean, some people think their lawn's dead, um, but uh, that's not something that can easily be controlled either. Right. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. So Pete, you brought up the, you brought up the topic. So let's, let's carry on with that conversation about varieties. Um, that's another real common question that, that we get. And that is, you know, what, what variety of grass should I use? What, what kind of cool season grass, what kind of grass in general should I be using in my, my new lawn or, um, in renovating my lawn? What, what should I be using for, for that kind of thing? Well, there's, there's sort of like an infinite number of mixtures out there on the market. And some of them are really good. And some of them I'm not really high on. But the trend now, I think, is at least from the central part of the state further south, is to start moving in the direction more of improved varieties of tall fescue. You know, I would have never said that 20 years ago or even 15 years ago um, because of their coarse texture. They're not very compatible with other grasses. Um, they just they just didn't look good. But now with really intensive breeding efforts, we've got finer textured all fescues, darker green, um, still maybe not. 100% compatible with ryegrass and bluegrass, but they're getting better all the time. And with the emphasis now on reducing the amount of nitrogen you're putting on lawns and water and any, any of these uh, other things you have to do, fungicides, tall fescues are better in that respect. They, you can use less nitrogen, less water, and probably not as susceptible to diseases as perennial ryegrass is. So there's a lot of advantages. Now, when you get into the, the downside is they don't green up as quickly in spring. So if you're a homeowner and you've got all tall fescue and you're next door to somebody that has 100% perennial ryegrass lawn, then you're wondering why that guy's lawn is greening up faster than yours. Um, but again, it goes back to this being patient um, topic that we're talking about. Yeah, Pete, I I agree 300% with you, even here in Western Pennsylvania, um, 10, 
15 years ago, we just didn't talk about tall fescue um, because they weren't that attractive of varieties either. We didn't have, um, you know, even when we got a good stand of them, we just, it, they didn't look that good. Um, and I just never thought that I would hear myself say that the things I'm saying now about tall fescue, but man, I really think that they, they deserve a, a good look. Um, even on, even on sports fields, um, they, they, they can tolerate wear cause they're deep rooted. Um, they, they, they really, um, have come a long way with the, the breeding of, of, of tall fescues. So let me ask you a question, Jeff. Um, since you work a lot with sports turf, I know there are lawn care companies that are now contracting with high schools to do a lot of overseeding work and spray work. And um, one of the big ones in the southeast part of the state is using tall fescue exclusively now for overseeding athletic fields. I mean, how do you, how do you feel about that? I, I, I have mixed opinions about that as opposed to ryegrass, for example. Yeah. So um, the overseeding traditionally we have, um, you know, always said perennial rye, perennial rye, because it's such a quick germinator, right? And that that's um, one of the beautiful things about perennial rye is, you know, throw it down and if the conditions are right, three or four days later, we can have a seed germinating and, and be ready and, to go. Tall fescue, we don't, too. yeah, tall fescue, we don't quite have that same luxury, Um um, so that's one of the drawbacks to overseeding with tall fescue. Um, as far as appearance and texture goes, um, I've worked with a couple of guys out here in the western part of the state that um, back five, six years ago, they went in and they not only overseeded, but they completely renovated. Um, it's, a, it's a situation where there's no, no, um, no irrigation, and they put in a, a, a sole tall fescue stand and now obviously they overseed with tall fescue too and it's it's a field that's pretty close to where i live and i keep a pretty close eye on it and i'll tell you what it it takes a beating um and and just continues to look good um i would have to take a look at tall fescue in an overseeding situation more than i have um, i'd like to see how quickly we can get it germinated and, and how well it does with wear um, in its infancy stages when those plants are young to see how, um, to, start, to start changing my mind about tall fescue as an overseed. If we're in the off season and we have time for it to, stat, to establish, um, I think it's a great option, but. I agree with that. I think, I think it's gonna take a fair amount more time to get established and be wear tolerant. In fact, uh, Andy McNitt and one of his former graduate students did a project on that, found that it takes about 15 weeks before it can sustain substantial wear. And that's under ideal conditions in the summer. Uh, ryegrass is going to be able to tolerate wear faster. I, I, I still don't see uh, many people using tall fescue on their athletic fields for um, like college fields, like here at Penn State, for example, we're still bluegrass, ryegrass all the way. Right. Um, but for community fields, um, baseball, soccer, I that you know you can't afford to get in there and really manage it intensively. I think it's fantastic. That that's where I'm seeing it most. That's where I'm seeing it used. Um, municipal soccer. Um, 
um, fields that um, are out of the way, don't have irrigation, or don't have the ability to to irrigate because of water sources or water supply. Um, so it, it and in the in the location that I I'm you know the locations I'm thinking about um, where it's been effective, man, I it just it just goes gangbusters and really does pretty well. Um, like I, like we talked about that that it's a it used to be a texture thing. Um, you know, when the grass was it, kind of a coarse bladed, but but anymore the 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 tall fescues that we're seeing are 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 really more attractive and more playable, and um, I, I think are going to be it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next couple of years as as these new varieties continue to to hit the market. What about in ten years? Do you think we might see some Bermuda grasses up here in lawns? Yeah, I think that sounds like another episode um, of, of fresh cut grass. Um, we certainly have made progress with Bermuda grasses and being cold tolerant. Um, you know, we've had uh, um, we've had discussion on this program about um, the new varieties of Bermuda, um, and we've talked to you know people in the 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 cold cold west. Um, where they have a lot of snow cover and and high winds and um, you know they're not seeing winter desiccation, so I, I I think it'll be interesting to see. Um, and obviously, Tanner, your your research with with combining bluegrass and Bermuda together, um, that's an episode that I can't wait to to get you on board and and um, get you talking about um, what we're seeing with that research um, here in the in the Northeast. Yeah, it just it was just a, a just something to think about how things change in relatively short amounts of time. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll get into that subject another day. But another thing that I have on my list here, I wanted to ask Pete was about uh, you know mushrooms. You know, what do you what do you do about them? We see them a lot. Do they are all the mushrooms we see potentially associated with some type of uh, maybe fairy ring um, or I mean I, I guess. What do you, what do you, what do you have to say about that? I don't think so. I think a lot of them are, I would say even most of them are, and there, there's 30 different mushrooms that have been identified as fairy ring mushrooms. So, you know, who knows, but I think a lot of these mushrooms coming up to are associated with trees and tree roots and maybe some buried material, um, old, pieces of branches that are buried in the soil and they pop up. I mean, I I've seen mushrooms in my backyard, like shaggy manes, for example, I don't think they've ever been associated with, um, fairy ring. They just kind of blow in as spores from other locations and they just happen to land in areas where they're, they're well-suited. It's kind of like moss, you know, moss spreads by spores and you just land in an area where, Moss or mushrooms are well adapted to growing and you can get germination of that spore and grows into a mushroom relatively quickly. And keep in mind mushrooms, you know, most of the, the body of the mushroom is down below the surface. So don't be under the impression that you can just spray a fungicide on mushrooms and have them go away. You know, you might burn back the top or destroy the top, but the, the thallus or the rest of the uh, the body is down below the surface. And that's probably going to be there for a little while. 
So what I usually tell homeowners, homeowners seem to get upset about mushrooms too. I'm not quite sure why. Um, maybe they have just large outbreaks of them from time to time. And I usually just tell them, mow them off. That's the best thing to do. Because um, you'll never really control them unless you get into a really intensive program of aerating, wetting agents, expensive uh, systemic fungicides. Um, if you want to talk about mushrooms, man, get Mike Finanza. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just shows though. I mean, even anything you can do to convince a homeowner to mow more often or anyone to mow more often, it's going to be better for the turf. I mean, right. I know that, you know, folks like Dr. McNitt, you know, he says it talks about the benefits of mowing and the, all the different things that improve because of more frequent mowing. You know, it's not that we're talking about mowing lower or anything like that or mowing higher. We can talk about that, but just the frequency of mowing, you know, it's better for the turf. Yeah. And mushrooms, I think if you're looking at it from a, a visual standpoint, the only time they really detract is when they're above the canopy, right? When they're putting the fruiting bodies out and they're little white um, blotches all over your yard and you just mow those off. Now you might get more coming up pretty quick, but you're right. Just mowing frequency is probably the only way to really you know, improve the uh, visual appearance when they're a problem in the lawn. So Tanner, um, any final words for our listeners today? I think we covered a lot of different, a lot of different topics. Maybe Pete has a few things that he wants to add. Well, I, you know, we can talk about products another time, but I, I just wanted to mention um, um, something about nutsedge control too. Nutsedge, we didn't really mention that. Mostly a problem down in the southeast part of the state, but also uh, becoming like goosegrass, I'm seeing it more in other parts of the state as well. And it could be, again, just because we have had a couple of mild winters and warm summers, but um, a new one that's um, come out is called Vexus. That's a granular nutsedge product that you can just sprinkle around and water in. And that's supposed to control nutsedge. And I haven't really worked with it yet, uh, but I'm looking forward to doing something with that this summer. And another one is called Solero. Now that's been on the market for a few years, but that one um, not only controls nutsedge, but that other weed that I mentioned earlier in the show, false green Kalinga. Um, so those are some other ones that are on the market. Um, now, this year it's probably just gonna be something new and interesting like every year. So I, I can't wait to see what happens once all the snow melts. There's no, there's no normal anymore, is there? Oh. There's no, no, what, what's a normal year look like? It looks like whatever's going to happen this year is going to be normal. Um, so, yeah. um, Pete, we really appreciate you um, being a, a, a part of our show here this, today. Um, and any final thoughts for our listeners? No, I'm looking forward to listening to um, your speaker this afternoon. Uh, yeah, great. We're, so, we're looking forward to it. Our next episode, we'll be talking about um, the seed industry. So um, we're, we're looking forward to having our guests join us. Um, so this is going to wrap up this episode of Fresh Cut Grass. Our guest today was Pete Lanscoot, Extension Turf Grass Specialist from Penn State University. I'll remind all of our listeners that if you have questions for us or other topics that you would like for us to discuss on the show, we can be reached at our email address, 
freshcutgrass at psu.edu. That's freshcutgrass at psu.edu. And we look forward to hearing from you about potential things that we could talk about on the show. So for this episode, we're going to sign off. And thanks for being with me, Tanner. It's always a pleasure to have you.